I want to begin actually by um, doing a little plug. Uh, uh, there's a, uh, an event, um, a speaker, American speaker, William Lane Craig, on the 25th of October in the Sheldonian, where William Lane Craig is going to explain why he believes in God. And um, I plug it partly because there's been quite an amusing um, little advertising campaign going on for the last little while. Um, they invited Richard Dawkins to uh, come and debate whether God existed with William Lane Craig, and he declined. So they decided to put on Oxford's buses um, this advert. There's probably no Dawkins, so stop worrying and come and hear William Lane Craig. The reason why they did that, or the joke in part, is because of a previous advertising campaign by the British Humanist Society. They wrote on London buses, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy yourselves. When the British Humanist Society decided to do that, I I, um, noticed that and I thought it's extremely um, uh, interesting what they've decided to put on those buses. I thought it would be well worth someone sitting down at some point and trying to seriously think what the implications are for that statement from the British Humanist Society. And so I want to do that for a few minutes and then I want to show you why it actually is very, very pertinent to Exodus chapter 12. So let me um, draw out what I think are some inevitable conclusions, some inevitable implications that come from that statement. First is this one. Um, They seem to assume that life without God is necessarily enjoyable, don't they? There's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life or your, uh, uh, your, yourself. Actually, I think the 20th century has more commonly suggested that life with no God in the universe is horrible. Um, uh, uh, Edvard Munch's um, picture, you remember it perhaps, a, a horrific um, uh, picture of a person screaming. It's entitled The Scream. was a sort of cry of existential angst about the possibility of a world in which there is no God and no uh, meaning. Many, many commentators have suggested actually a, a world with no God is a, a world of trivial pleasures and deep horror. Um, Douglas Coupland, the um, uh, who, wrote, who, who coined the term Generation X and uh, wrote another book, Life After God. And at the end of this book, exploring actually his quest for, uh, for meaning and beauty in, in, uh, in this book, at the end of the book, he confesses on the last page, he says, I want to tell you a secret. I need God. I don't think most people would actually agree that life without God is necessarily more enjoyable. That's what they claim. Some things, though, I think, are even more interesting. There might 
be a God is clearly the implication of that statement, aren't there? Apparently Richard Dawkins um, asked originally when they were planning this campaign whether they could put there is almost certainly no God and the British Humanist Association said that was going too far. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) But even if there's almost certainly no God as Richard Dawkins claims or as there might be a God, as, uh, as the rest of the British Humanist Association um, claim, really, really is very interesting. Blaise Pascal, a philosopher of a, of a past era, um, long ago pointed out that actually people choose atheism for reasons other than pure logic. Pure logic would lead you to, firstly, perhaps to that conclusion, there might be a God, and then to a serious search for this God and for what he might be like. Pascal said, no, there are other reasons why people choose atheism. More recently, um, uh, uh, um, Alistair McGrath has written a a book entitled The Twilight of Atheism where he has pointed out that actually atheism only thrives in cultures where there are particular social things going on. In particular, the main thing going on um, is a dysfunctional form of Christianity. And so atheism is often much more a protest about a bad form of Christianity than it ever is dispassionate logic. Even the British Humanist Association say there might be a God. Implication number three. If there is a God... He's definitely going to stop you enjoying yourself. That's what, that's what they're suggesting, isn't it? Which is completely contrary, in fact, to all the evidence. The evidence is, in survey after survey after survey, that religious people generally are happier. How does that fit with their, 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 their claim? Actually, more than that, surveys that compare Christianity and other religions suggest that Christian people are the happiest. Indeed, evangelical Christians are the happiest of them all. Of course, we all um, struggle with the common tragedies of life, but somehow the evidence suggests that people who believe in the God of the Bible become happier. And then a fourth implication. And we could go on, but let me, let me just, uh, just do four. They seem to um, clearly believe that people in general, you know, the people who read notices on London buses, worry about there being a God. This is not something that is, that, that, that is ignored by people, they feel. But the people worry some people um, uh, claim that human beings universally want there to be a God and, and, um, uh, and I'm sure in one sense that is true. But the British Humanist Association are suggesting that 
the reality of God may be worrying. So I want to ask a question uh, this morning. And it's this. What does the book of Exodus have to say about all this? Actually, it is a, it is a major theme of the book of Exodus, this, this idea of, 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 is there a God and what is he like? It starts, you remember, uh, some weeks ago we looked at the beginning of Exodus and there God seemed to be absent. He doesn't get a mention in, in chapter 1 but we saw he's working quietly behind the scenes. But um, it becomes clear that Israel and even Moses uh, uh, effectively have, have, have sort of given up on God. And then in chapter 3, God turns up First of all, God, God, God shows up in the, the, in the burning bush. And it's absolutely at the forefront of the discussion. Well, what's he like? What's this God who's starting to appear like? Who are you, says Moses? And uh, he gets the answer from God. I am. I am who I am. Moses is deeply worried. He knows the people. He says, well, the people are going to say the same thing as well. Who is this God? And uh, he's told to go and tell the people exactly the same thing. I am. Frankly, as Dan pointed out to us, that doesn't immediately help that much. There is a sense in which God is saying, hang around, see what I do, and then you will see what I am like. Uh, But then, beyond that, in Exodus 5 to 11 and on into 12 this time, it does start to get seriously worrying. Okay? This question then, perhaps the the last question from these implications of the British Humanist, Humanist Society, becomes really the central one. Okay, if there is a God, and we're starting to learn what he's like, should we worry? And it seems uh, pretty clear in Exodus 5 to 11 that uh, the answer of the Egyptians, at least, is an emphatic yes. Now, now, now let, me just, let me just stop at this minute for, for, for a minute and just say this, this is deeply serious stuff. I, I recognise that. And I also want to say, I, I don't want to unnecessarily frighten you. This is not a game, what, what is being recorded in, in the Bible. It is, it is serious stuff. And it is possible for preachers to be a bit OTT. Um, like the story of the, um, the Irish preacher who said... Um, in hell there'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth you know the one and someone shouts out what if you have no if I have no teeth and he says teeth will be provided yeah I'm, I don't want to be like that okay um, I, I, but neither do I want to trivialise it this is an ancient story perhaps but actually it's a story that historically Um, believers have believed is profoundly revelatory about the eternal character of God and massively important for us today. Massively important 
for people who read the notices of the British Humanist Society, who the British Humanist Society think are worried. Okay? So I, I don't want to be too, I don't want to be flippant, I don't want to be too melodramatic, but I do want you to get the implication of Exodus 5 to 12. Let's, let's look then, with, with, with that in mind, at what Pharaoh discovers. He starts, you can flick through it if you like, or you can just listen to me as I read it. He starts proud and imperious at the beginning of the interaction. In Exodus 5 verse 2, he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. But as the, as the plagues start, he begins to wobble. Exodus, Exodus 8 verse 8. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs, that's one of the plagues, uh, the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. But Pharaoh, as Dan was showing us last week, hardens his heart. Chapter 8, verse 15. When Pharaoh saw there was relief from the frogs, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. But the plagues keep coming, and Pharaoh gets wobblier and wobblier. Eventually he confesses his sin. Chapter 9, verse 27. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he says, as if he hadn't before. Um, The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. But actually it's not true repentance of Pharaoh. Chapter 9, verse 34. When Pharaoh saw the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, the latest plague, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. And so you find this cumulative building of plague after plague after plague. And and Pharaoh, his hard heart and stubborn heart and determined refusal getting assaulted again and again and again until finally death is on the way. Chapter 11, verse 4. Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill. And all the firstborn cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. And Pharaoh ends a broken man. 12 verse 31. After that plague of death, Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go and worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And also bless me. It's, it's, it's still in the form of a command. Up, Leave, but now this is the cry of someone in abject terror. Go, worship, take your lambs, he says. All the things that Moses has been requesting, he is given. Uh, he, He now capitulates to and adds at the end this sort of plaintive pleading of a broken man, the most powerful man in the world, as Dan said. Please bless me. See, it's, it's really the atheists are 
right. The prospect of the existence of God is something worrying. For the Egyptians of this world at least. I'm not saying that flippantly. It's deeply serious. I want to say as well, that is not the only side of God. By any means. The Bible says emphatically that God is love. God's, 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 God's character, God's property, as the old um, uh, um, uh, uh, prayer book used to say. God's property is always to have mercy. God, God has certain characteristics which are intrinsic to him. And this Anger, judgment of God is not intrinsic to him. It, it, it doesn't belong to him eternally. It is, it is as, um, as the great reformer Martin Luther used to describe it, quoting Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21, his judgment is his strange work, not his proper work. It is his alien work. It, 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 God's, God's work of anger and judgment is, in a sense, is, is, is parasitic, is, is as um, some people call it, describe it, adventitious on, on an aspect of his character which is proper to him, which is intrinsic to him, which is with him eternally. It is his justice. You see, God cannot be a holy God and not be absolutely, perfectly, eternally just. And God cannot be perfectly, eternally just without bringing judgment on people who stand up against him and say, who is the Lord that I should bow down to him? And so the, this, 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 this strange, alien, but very real work of God comes into this world and God judges. You know, I think that the underlying reason why people are instinctively worried about God it's because instinctively they sense that's true. If there is a God of justice, I am in trouble. Should we worry about God? Well, the answer in Exodus 5 to 12 for the Egyptians is an emphatic yes, but here's a surprise. The answer for Israel is also Yes. From the moment that God turns up, there is actually an edge in his relationship, even with his own people, even with his chosen person, Moses. Moses sees a burning bush and starts wandering up to it casually, and God says, don't come any nearer, take off your shoes, this is holy ground, you'd better watch out, Moses. And then Moses is incredibly cheeky when God starts speaking to him, and he says, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. And eventually, though God is patient, there is an edge that comes in, and we're told God's anger burned against 
Moses. Then, when the plagues start coming, it does seem that God is selective, looking after his own people, judging the Egyptians. Um, The last but one plague, for instance, makes it very plain. A plague of darkness comes uh, uh, on the land. Exodus 10, verse 23, no one could see anyone else or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Is, 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 is this God then just a partial God who, who, who arbitrarily protects his own people? Again, in uh, chapter 11, when God brings uh, uh, or threatens to bring the uh, judgment of death on the firstborn on, his, uh, on all the Egyptians, uh, we find in verse 7, But among the Israelites not a dog will bark at any person or animal, and then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And up to this point, frankly, it looks like, to be honest, this is teaching what every cynic um, uh, thinks that Christians uh, teach that God loves me and he hates you and so um, hard luck you but Exodus 12 starts to make something uh, make it plain that that, 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 is a, that is a simplistic understanding of the character of God there are things that they need to do which we'll see in a minute, involving the sacrifice of a, um, uh, a, a lamb, in order to protect themselves. And then look at chapter 12, verse 13. The blood, the blood of this lamb, which is now um, um, marked on the doorposts and lintels of the houses, the blood, we are told, will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I, God, see the blood, I will pass over you. No distractive plague will touch you when I strike, strike Egypt. The implication is clear. If there is no blood, if these Israelites do not do what they are told to do in sacri- sac- sacrificing a lamb and smearing the blood, they are in as much trouble as the Egyptians. And that gets repeated. Verse 23 of chapter 12. Um, When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, you will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame. Sorry, he will see the blood and will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Israel, you are in trouble if you don't do this thing. God is a God of absolute impartial justice. It is one of his, his perfections. He is determined, ultimately, in eternity, that there should never be any injustice that has not been righted in the whole of his world, in the whole of eternity. And that applies to his people, believers, as much as it applies to anyone else. And because of that, his people, today, Christians, must take that very, very seriously. Should we worry? 
about this, God? Oh, yes, we should. We should take his character deeply seriously. British Humanist Association know that. And I hope every Christian knows that. So the next question then, a question that must be in our minds and a question which is expounded in a, in a beautiful way in Exodus chapter 12. Okay, if that's what God is like, what's the solution? And the solution in chapter 12 is very clear. A substitute. A Passover lamb, we are told, must be chosen for each family uh, in order for God to pass over those households and not bring the judgment of death on the firstborn into those, those households. It must be smeared on the doorposts, as we've already seen, as a sign. And there are clear and detailed instructions about this lamb. For instance, verse 4, there should be just the right amount of lamb. Chapter 12, verse 4. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. Just the right amount of lamb must be sacrificed for those people. And those lambs must be perfect. Verse 5, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. You may take them from the sheep or the goats. So, strictly speaking, it's a lamb or a, or a, or a kid in, in, in English. But uh, the, the, the main point is they must be without defect. The blood must be dealt with in a specific way. Verse 7, Take, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. And the lamb itself must be eaten by these people in a specific way prescribed by God. And, uh, verse 8, the same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Don't eat the meat raw or boiled in water but roast it over a fire with the head and legs and internal organs. And they must eat that lamb ready for action. Verse 11. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. You know, some people test this is this is just a bit of magic, isn't it? They say, you know, you do a bit of hocus pocus involving smearing blood, sounds more like ma- black magic than anything, and, and hey presto, everything's okay between you and God. What sort of a religion is that? Well, uh, those people are missing what it's all about. 
These are symbolic actions, but they are symbolic actions designed to teach something. They are designed to teach the need for a substitute. God is perfectly just. All sin will be punished. If we can't endure it, that sin, that punishment has to be diverted into, in another direction. In this case, symbolically towards a lamb. A lamb which is perfect. A lamb which is perfect for our need. Just enough. A lamb that we identify with in eating it. I mean, on its own, that, that sounds silly, doesn't it? But it is only a symbol. And it finally makes sense when we see Jesus. Because Jesus is described as the Passover lamb who died for our sins. Perfect, he had no sin. His death on the cross was for our sins, not his own. Tailored perfectly to our need. Son of God became a man. Human beings have to pay for human sins, not lambs. So he became a human being. But most importantly, fulfilling the perfect justice of God. How could a lamb pay for our sins? Indeed, how could a third party of any kind pay for our sins? Someone else goes to prison for what I do. That's not just. But if it's the one against whom we sinned, who chose to become a man and to pay for it himself, he has worked out his perfect justice. And so God the Son became a man to pay for our sins because no one else could. The Lamb anticipates Jesus. And now, God's perfect justice is fulfilled. But people can be freed from worry, fear of that justice. Because God has done it. God has paid for what we did against him. Who's it for? Well, it's obviously for the Israelites, but there's something very interesting in Exodus 12 too. Verse 38, for instance, of that chapter. Many other people went up with the Israelites and large droves of livestock and flocks and herds and so on. Lots of others who weren't Israelites by, uh, by history went up with them. More than that, we, we are told that these Israelites can, these non-Israelites can join amongst the people of God. Verse 48, a foreigner reminding amongst you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised and then he may take, take all, uh, part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised person may eat of it, 
The same law applies to native born and the foreigner residing amongst you. You've got to do something to identify with this God. In their days, it is you've got to be circumcised, but it doesn't matter what racial background you come from. It doesn't matter whether you traditionally come from, from an atheist background. If you identify with this God, indeed if you identify with this Passover lamb, Jesus, you are set free. So then, um, how does that apply to us? It's massively, massively important, isn't it? I think one person in ten, Christian or non-Christian, fails to have an instinct about the justice of God. And what the Bible says is actually, that vague instinct you have is 110% true. He is a God of perfect justice. But he has provided a substitute. He has paid. If you identify with him, You, Christian, here this morning, if you engage with this Jesus, if you put your faith in this Jesus, if you identify with Jesus, with your, with your, with your, your, um, um, your coat tucked up, ready to run for him, you are okay. You here. Even if you're a signed up member of the British Humanist Association, indeed, perhaps particularly if you're a signed up member of the British Humanist Association, you can be free of that nagging worry because of Jesus. There is no message more liberating, no message more exciting. No message more profound than what you will find in Exodus 12. So, Christians, will you identify with that Jesus? Will you live your life for him? And if you're not yet, it's just the same question. Dan's going to lead us in prayer.